This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or on a streaming service and connect and compare it to older films by the same filmmaker or in the same genre. Sometimes we give love to the work of an actor, lead, or supporting. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and critic. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris, and it can be found at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name's Stephen Cook, and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network here in Halifax. And on this episode of Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast, we are taking a trip down a romantic lane. Romantic comedies. This is, I guess, our second time looking at uh, devoting an episode to romantic comedies. And we've got at least a couple of brand new ones that we're going to be talking about right after this. Well, Karsten, it's the night before Halloween, and we're here talking about the scariest thing of all, commitment. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> that's pretty great, Stephen. I appreciate de- what Devil's Night, and that's what we're going to talk about. Exactly. I know. I mean, it's it's it's. It, we did our Halloween episode last time, so you know, yes. there anyone who who was interested in, in hearing about scary movies can can do it. Uh, can go back one episode, and besides, by the time this comes out, the Halloween will be Day. yeah. It'll, Halloween will have been passed, and and we can think about uh, you know different things. Yeah, like romance. Yeah, so the you know the 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 saints of the heart featured in these films, <laughs> Saint yeah. Valentine, I guess who yeah. who comes down and shoots his invisible arrows to the hearts of these characters one by one. Yeah, and you know it's funny. I went back and listened to our episode, the one previous episode that we devoted specifically to pod to uh, to romantic comedies on our podcast. Uh, it was episode twenty seven, in case you had forgotten. And this is episode one fifty six, so it's been a while. It has been a while. Um, it's interesting because we were definitely more in in sort of doing an overview at the time. We we just talked about our favorite ones and then sort of dug deep on a, on a few here and there. But most mostly we're just like talking about all the romantic comedies we'd watched over the years and how many had stuck in our heads. And, and uh, you know, it was it was fun to go back. And, and now now we're, we're looking more at uh, at ones we haven't seen or we haven't seen so long that we've forgotten them and want, wanted to revisit them. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting that one of the th- observations I made back then was for the genre to flourish, more women need to be writing and directing them. And and I, I think some of that has happened since that episode, which was back, I think, in 2016. But uh, what's really happened, of course, is that Netflix has stepped up and done a lot of rom-coms. In fact, you know, streaming services in general have prioritized that genre rather than, than the big screen. Though, um, you know, we actually have uh, two new romantic comedies in cinemas. I think one of them actually has just arrived on on digital. Isn't that yes. right? Bros is now on Yeah, it's digital. not in theaters here anyway. I think yeah. it's just starting to play like overseas. I think it just opened in England recently. Right, but. yes. The Empire Podcast just did a review, so that would be that would suggest that was the case. But we've also got Ticket to Paradise, which is still in cinemas, and uh, and is, is uh, you know, the return of George Clooney and... Um, uh, Julia Roberts, and you know it's funny that they both made so many different kinds of films, those two. But we always associate them with these kinds of feel-good movies. Why is that? I mean, you know, obviously they work together in the Ocean's movies, um, and they work together in Money Monster. But I don't, I don't know that I immediately think 
uh, romantic comedies when I when I think of I, I mean, you know okay so Julia Roberts got her start in Pretty Woman so maybe that's why everyone thinks yeah of her that, for that that that's a big one for sure yeah and she did My Best Friend's Wedding um, you know and, and uh, Clooney it's a Runaway Bride too I believe oh yes that's right yes yes so you know there's been there's been a number of them but so long ago I mean really we're talking almost twenty years for a lot of these that um, you know I guess there's some nostalgia related to these actors working in these in this genre and i can't deny their dazzling star power i mean you know they're both oscar winners but they are genuine movie stars and it's really great seeing them in a movie together again i i did enjoy just that just their practically blinding good looks you know (laughs) in their 50s uh great teeth you know all of the things all the charm is still very much present yeah this is as close as we're going to get to our generation's version of Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, I guess, or or Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, or anybody in Catherine <laughs> Hepburn. Yeah, that 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 you know that that we have, you know, big name stars, actors who carry this kind of weight on the marquee and have that instant uh, recognize, recognizability factor, whatever you want to call it, and that uh, that kind of have your have you on their side right away like they don't like george clooney and julie roberts don't have to work overly hard to win you over no it's uh, true in any way shape or form but uh, obviously in this film they are completely at odds uh and hate each other at the start of the film so so i i guess we have to accept that state of affairs yes and then uh, and then work our way uh to the uh maybe not so inevitable conclusion from there. Yeah, no, and, and I mean, it's fine, right? They're, they're David and Georgia. They're long divorced, uh, but they're traveling to Bali, uh, actually shot in Australia, I understand, uh, where their daughter, Lily, uh, played by Caitlin Deaver, has fallen in love with a hunky local seaweed farmer. Uh, as played, you do. As you do, yeah. Played by Maxime Boutier while on vacation, and, and she's throwing away a promising career in law to live on this Indonesian island. Uh, and, of course, the parents are completely opposed to this idea, mostly because, you know, they they felt like they made that mistake themselves. They got married too young when they were hot for each other, and it really didn't work out, and they have this long-time animosity. So they figure what they'll do is shelve all their, their you know, <laughs> acrimony for one another and uh, and sabotage Lily's matrimonial plans. Uh, and this is also while Georgia, the Julia Roberts character, is dating a much younger handsome French pilot uh, played by Lucas Bravo. So, uh, yeah, the first act is mostly Roberts and Clooney, uh, you know, bickering, the sort of screwball in the comedy, which uh, a lot of that is is funny. I mean, there's plenty of zingers and the ex- one at the expense of the other. Um, it just didn't, for me, it didn't feel hugely fresh. Uh, it just, it was just charming enough to keep the interest. Um, but I didn't find that they were actually that mean to each other or all that funny, generally. Um and then, and then you've got, you know, you've got uh, Deaver, who is a, a really an up-and-coming actor, both in comedy and in drama. And she and Billy Lord were both in Booksmart, which was, you know, as we've talked about on this show, one of my favorite movies of recent years. And they were so funny and so good in that film. And uh, Billy Lord is here as the best friend. Uh, Ren, but they don't they don't really get much to do. I mean, Ren is there to make a few wisecracks now and again, but doesn't really get much to drive the plot. Um, you know, and 
I don't know. I want to ask you about this, Stephen, because <laughs> because there was a moment in this film that I felt it really could push push its luck uh, and also audience's expectation. There's a scene with George Clooney in a bar, and he's feeling down on his luck. He's feeling a little sad. And Ren comes in, and they have kind of a heart-to-heart. And I was like, is one of them going to make a pass at the other here? Because they're both technically single, and Ren has already you know, expressed interest in a number of different – You know, she's clearly – interested in in dudes uh and i just wondered how awkward and hilarious it would have been if they had actually gotten drunk and you know both taken a a chance that they both lived to regret you know or at least venture closer to the edge of the (laughs) precipice and that i have a feeling they they maybe they even attempted something like that and realized they'd lose half their audience yeah, right, right then and there. And I mean, you know, Clooney's appeal is that he is a decent man underneath all the bickering. So, of course, he's a lot of people would be like, well, that's you can't do that. You can't sleep with your daughter's best friend and have any kind of possibility. But I just I don't know. I just felt like there was there were moments here where the, you could just feel the the possibility of something that would be genuinely provocative. But of course, Unfortunately, Hollywood is so adverse to sex that uh, that I mean, even <laughs> yes. even the suggestion that um, you know you don't want to scandalize anybody and uh, and Lily and her her betrothed, you know, when they first spend the night together, he makes some comment about how you know the next morning her room's floor wasn't very comfortable. I'm just like, really? Like they're so hot for each other, and yet and yet you know you know, and then they're the most gorgeous place in the world. That just seems you know, on a resort or whatever that just seems uh, designed to have people get together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sort of thing. And yeah, and it's it's a little unbelievably chaste, especially it, she's been through three years of college at this point. So. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, so there were other issues I had with it as well. Um, you know, I just... I mean, there were parts of the film I liked. I mean, I already established that I really like these people in it, in the film. Uh, in the second and third act, it becomes a little more, um, I guess sincere and they soften david and george are sort of softened towards each other and they start to rethink about their shared past with with a little more sentiment than uh and fewer regrets and uh and it gives us something to feel about it i think that i think there is something genuinely good about you know the 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 way the film talks about being of a certain age and realizing everyone has a history and good or bad you know it's it's made us who we are and whether you you feel like it was painful or difficult or whatever i all of that kind of stuff I really liked, but I still felt like this whole thing was, I mean, a lot more conventional than it should have been, um, you know, and, and I just, I wanted more from the film than I got. Uh, it, as much as, as I appreciate certain ways in the film, the storytelling, I, I didn't think it was all that special. Yeah, I, I don't think it's the best work that and, uh, the two leads have done, uh, necessarily, uh, but I guess I went in with fairly low expectations. I, I feel like the movie gave me exactly what I expected from it. Uh, you know, some charming, attractive people uh, bickering and being witty in a beautiful tropical location and and uh, hitting all the appropriate beats of a of a big screen romantic comedy, I guess. And uh, I feel bad that I didn't have higher expectations for this movie than, than what we got, but... Um, I feel like it's 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 pretty good for what it is. It's you know it's it's a high grade date movie, I suppose, uh, and uh, you know it would have been nice if it had aspired to be more than that. 
but uh, that's that's not the not not what we got. But it's 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 charming enough and enough of an escape. Uh, and you know, you you do believe in the, the you know the, the if not the reconciliation, the the warming, uh, the the calming of the waters between the main characters. You know, who 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 are fairly venomous at the start of the film, and and but also fairly narcissistic too, and and. Uh, and and you know I, I could I could see enough uh, enough to believe in the, in the way they come around as the film progresses. Yeah, it was fascinating how I guess uh, down to earth their daughter was. All things considered, <laughs> yes, yes. That's, well, she's been away from them in college, I guess, for the last uh, you know few years, and 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 she's I guess she's a you know quote unquote daddy's girl uh, more so than anything uh, from from what we from what little information we have about the familial relationship uh, that's given in the film and um, I uh, yeah I, you know m- maybe maybe a little bit more of that uh, family relationship stuff because once once they're on the island it's like the the parents are doing one thing and the daughter's kind of doing one thing and they're trying to plot against the the young couple coming together and and then the, the groom knows uh, the potential groom has information that he's scared to reveal to his bride to be. And, and then we get into the kind of the machinations and twists of the plot that, you know, when really you'd want something, you want something a little, maybe more emotional, a little more um, real from, uh, from either of the characters. So. Yeah, no, I'm with you there. I'm with you there. Now it's interesting. We went back a ways, uh, the director and I guess co-writer, writer, Ole Parker, uh, who gave us Ticket to Paradise, uh, did a romantic comedy a few years back, back in 2006, I believe, called Imagine Me and You. This one I liked quite a bit more than a Ticket to Paradise. Um, in some ways, it's more predictable, but its premise, I think, feels even 15 years later a little fresher. Uh, it's a very much a forwardings and a funeral scenario. It's set in in the wealthy part of London amongst wealthy white folks, um, and it opens with a wedding. Piper Parabo, I believe I'm pronouncing her name right, is Parabo. Anyway, Parabo. She, Parabo yeah. She's uh, Rachel doing a very convincing British accent, and Matthew Good is Heck, I think short for Hector, uh, and they're getting married, and they're both very good looking, and it's all great, it's very charming, and we get to meet all the supporting cast around them because they're all attending this wedding. Her parents are played by Celia Imry and Anthony Head of uh, Buffy the Vampire fame, uh, but they are miserable in their marriage, but in a kind of charming way. Now, Hex got a couple of work pals, the relentless playboy Cooper, played by Darren Boyd, who feels... I know, he feels a little anachronistic now, I gotta say. But the even worse Rob, played by Ben Miles, who's cheating on his partner all the time, apparently. Meanwhile, Rachel has a couple of friends, uh, Beth, played by Sharon Horgan, and Xena, played by Vinette Robinson. And they're, uh, and the ind- adorable little girl, who I wasn't actually sure whose kid she was. Maybe Beth's kid? Anyway, her, her she's Henrietta, or H, and she's played by Boo Jackson, and prone to asking some very difficult questions. So... You know, as Richard Curtis convinced us in the 1990s, and we talked about this a lot in our last romantic comedy episode, the British rom-com really lives or dies by its supporting cast, and this isn't a bad one. Uh, But what's unusual about this film is Rachel meets Luce, who is the florist working at the wedding, and she's played by Game of Thrones' Lena Headey. And right away there's a spark. Rachel wants to be friends and then discovers Luce is gay. And then you get this will they or won't they tension. She's, you know, obviously Rachel's married and Heck is a lovely guy. 
I mean, the worst thing about him, I think, is maybe his name. So it's this very <laughs> gentle, charming, somewhat predictable romantic comedy. But the fact of a character discovering their, you know, closeted, I think, is what makes it interesting. And uh, and it has a still, I think, even in 2022, slightly surprising same-sex twist. Um, yeah, what did you make of it, Stephen? I really like this film. Uh, and it, it does kind of hit all the beats you'd expect, but it does have enough of a twist in the fact that it is, uh, you know, becomes a same sex, uh, relationship that, uh, that the main character that played by Piper Parabo is, is, is heading for. She's, she's got a lot of new conflicted feelings and she doesn't quite understand them. And, um, you know, and, and Luce played by Lena Headey is, is, um, you know, trying to sort of head her off at the pass, I guess. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it, it at least has that little twist. I mean, I think a lot of it uh, relies on the charm of its cast. Again, like Ticket to Paradise, but but I feel like it's enough of an interesting situation that it succeeds. Maybe where Ticket to Paradise doesn't always uh, pull through, and and I think that uh, you know it's funny. Like Piper Parabo, I remember. I think she first came to prominence in Coyote Ugly. I think that might have been her first kind of major role. And yeah, then, that's right. And then she was in that, a dreadful live action Rocky and Bullwinkle movie. <laughs> Oh. And and then it was kind of like well it was all downhill from there and so it's it's nice to actually and see her use her charm to good effect uh, as this character and that uh, that in fact um, you know that Rachel uh, does have some depth to her and does have you know feelings that need to be recognized and and uh, acknowledged and 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 I, I did like the the kind of friendship leading into love that she has with uh, with. Um, with Luce, the florist, and you know we've got the we've got the meet cute like we're at the wedding where where um, where Luce helps Rachel scoop her wedding ring out of the punch and and uh, you know and then Rachel getting hit on by the um, or rather Luce getting hit on by the the wolfish best man who yeah Cooper Cooper um, who's played by uh, an actor Darren Boyd who I know mostly uh, these days from the Outlaws a really wonderful series on uh, Amazon where he's um, he's doing. Um, community service work for a, I don't know if it's a drunk driving sentence or, or what it was, but he's on like a, on a, a crew of, of, um, you know, misfits, including Christopher Walken is an aging huh. wannabe mobster and stuff. I, I, I recommend it, but, it, but, you know, he's a lot younger here and, uh, playing a very different character and he's, he's, he's sort of charming and repulsive at the same time, <laughs> which I think, I think, uh, which he also kind of does in the outlaws a little bit, but, but, uh, you know, I, part of me wonders like, would Luce put up for, with him even for a second, you know, as he's trying to imply that, you know, that he could he could change her into a heterosexual or whatever, and 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 but but of course the, the convention of the film demands that she put up with his uh, approaches and and um, and then rebuff him and put him in his place. So, you know, I, I guess we have to feel that she would give him enough rope to hang himself, supposedly. But but uh, but but overall, I think that the film uh, doesn't try to get too, too cutesy, even though there's a little kid character involved just trying to figure out what's going on with the adults in her life and so on. But I, I, I find that uh, that it does balance that that line between cute and sincere pretty well. And here we are back at Lends Me Your Ears in this episode talking about romantic comedies. And in this segment, we're going to start with one which is uh, recently in cinemas and now available to be rented on digital platforms. And that's Bros, 
Directed by Nicholas Stoller and written by Stoller and Billy Eichner. Of course, Billy on the street. That's the uh, comedian who, uh, you know, uh, basically accosts people on the street of New York <laughs> with his, uh, his uh, very much in-your-face brand of comedy. And that's sort of where I knew him from, mostly. Um, and it's been interesting seeing the sort of cultural impact of this film. Film Twitter has been up in arms about why bros bombed at the box office and whether its star, uh, you know, was right to browbeat his audience into going to see the movie <laughs> and whether or not he said homophobia was the reason it didn't do well. And and I wonder if it is. I don't have any of those answers, um, but maybe over time we'll have a better sense of, of you know, the, the impact of this film. I think it has a real shot at being a, you know, a film that a lot of people come back to over time because I think it's very funny and in many ways very smart. Yeah, I really like this film. I like Billy Eichner. He could He's a personality that uh, you have to kind of grow to like, I think, if you only know him from certain things. Like Billy on the Street, it's it's like this guerrilla comedy thing that he does where he, like, as you say, he costs people and asks some questions like, you know, like name a Bette Midler movie or something like that or, or whatever. Or he'll have Paul Rudd along with him and just to kind of catch them off guard and hope that they say something, you know, outrageous or funny or whatever. Um, I, I know him a little bit better from a show called Difficult People, uh, where um, he and uh, comedian writer Julie Klausner play, they play sort of fictionalized versions of themselves. And it's quite a funny show. I, I don't know that it was on anything in Canada. I, it was on Hulu in the States anyway. So it might be out there somewhere on some streaming service, but he's very good there playing a more comedic version of what he does here. I mean, it, it's more, it's not exactly a sitcom, but he, you know, he's, there's, there's some stuff about being a single gay man and, and having a lousy day job and that kind of stuff. Uh, in in the body of that show where he's he's being very much a kind of a heightened version of himself and we're seeing a variation on that here in bros but of course here now he has to carry a film uh and uh and i think he does a pretty good job i think he does soften his edges somewhat um uh here uh in this film and and then he's got this uh great rapport with luke uh, luke mcfarlane that i thought uh was uh, was quite believable as they kind of try to get around their differences because the differences are what make them attracted to each other and, uh, and, and dig into some of the kind of uh, quirks of gay relationships that don't necessarily always get expressed in, uh, in mainstream films. Because obviously this is a big studio film. It's a mainstream film, but it's presenting uh, you know, gay and LGBTQ romance and lifestyle in a way that, uh, that we hadn't seen on this level, I guess, in a, in a yeah. rom-com. Yeah, and I mean, I know, I was thinking about this, there aren't really any big screen gay comedy stars, you know, like, like that can open movies. And I think maybe this was Eichner's chance at doing that. Um, and I'm not sure he, he will get another chance. I hope he does, because there's a lot about this movie that's pretty great. He's, he's New York celebrity. He does a lot of things, this character, Bobby Lieber. He's a children's book author, podcaster, <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, he is, uh, and he's about to be coming the curator of this museum, this, the first of its kind, uh, this gay, gay museum in, um, in New York. And, you know, it's it's uh, there's a lot of sort of self-referential comedy here, which I very much appreciate. And there's a lot about lot. Of, it's got a lot to say about 
basically gay culture in America. You know, this this LGBTQ plus museum is uh, is you know is very much a center of of the kind of drama that he is he is exploring. I mean, really, it's just an excuse for more gags. But uh, but you know, it's also about his lifestyle. He's single at forty. He's quite happy with that. He's having a lot of sex, and I mean, there is a lot of sex in this film, which is great. It's nice to see it, and uh, and it really does express a lot of what being a you know successful gay man in New York City is probably like but when he meets Luke McFarlane as you mentioned Aaron this hunky lawyer who's miserable in his professional life but uh, he's not also particularly interested in commitment either that crux of how these two people neither of whom want to get into a relationship get into a relationship and uh, and that uh, there was a lot in there that I really enjoyed you know and there is room here for for real drama I think what I liked most about it is what the film taught me about what it's like in that community right now it felt very contemporary um, you know and I I uh, but I wish that Eichner and his collaborators including producer Judd Apatow had made a comedy I guess more in the vein of, I guess it, in more of an indie movie way, rather than trying to cleave to the rom-com tropes, because I felt like the film was at its weak, weakest when it didn't have confidence in itself as just a, a, a venue for storytelling, you know, um, and, and telling its own kind of story. I felt like, oh, we've got to have all these, like, what I think of as pretty cliched rom-com tropes, and that's when I was just like, ugh, so we've we settled back into this this convention, you know? Yeah, it does kind of want its cake and eat its two uh, a little bit, and you know, at the top of the film, it's kind of telling you that it's you know an important uh, move forward for for uh, you know for big budget comedy romantic comedies by by looking at LGBTQ lives and through a mainstream comedy lens or rom- romantic comedy lens. And uh, thankfully, it, it kind of settles into its own groove eventually. But once in a while, it has to, you're, you're right, it has to pop into those, you know, you know we're going to make fun of kind of a Hallmark moment, and then we're going to have a Hallmark moment <laughs> kind, of, kind of thing. And so it, it is a bit... Um, it is a bit two-headed in that regard. But... Uh, and I guess maybe that's... I mean, I don't know how much control Apatow had over the finished product. He's obviously one of the producers, and it does have that kind of you know, rambly, I don't want to say third act, but it it does kind of lose its way a bit as it gets, you know, further in, which is kind of what his comedies do. So I I don't know if, if, if maybe he wasn't the right person to produce it, or maybe it wouldn't have got made if he hadn't been at the helm. It's one of those kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't situations, I suppose. But, but, but I find that the, the cliched moments, uh, didn't, didn't hurt it for me. And I almost felt like maybe they felt they needed some of those signposts to kind of get a more mainstream audience on board with it as well. Uh, so I don't know. But then a movie like Fire Island, uh, which we talked about fairly recently, uh, shows you don't have to necessarily yeah. do all the cliches. And yeah. you can still get a fairly mainstream uh, audience, I, I'm guessing. I mean, I've, Yeah, I think, it, I think Fire Island did well. But Fire Island is also on a streaming service. That's true. And this opened in the cinema. And I, maybe that's the big difference. It's like you need to, uh, the people who were producing this maybe had uh, less confidence in that and needed more of that convention to, to get it made. And, and if so, then that's too bad. Because I, I hope that the box office disappointment of Bros winds up being sort of a gift in disguise for Eichner. If he is forced to make a picture on an indie budget, 
which might do something that's more risk-taking, you know, in other respects. Aside from, I mean, I think a lot of the writing here is super risk-taking, but but those conventions, you could just shake those off and try and make something that doesn't feel as formula. Yeah, I, I feel like the, the film is uh, is trying to make a lot of points uh, as it goes along and touch on a lot of things that, that uh, Eichner and Stoller felt needed to be touched on. And, and, and that can be at the expense of story from time to time. But I, I, I felt that most of the jokes hit their mark. And, and uh, you know, I, I, was, I was prepared to put up with a little slapdash, I guess, <laughs> yeah, to get yeah. there. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, let's move on to another film that also has a, uh, a very serious sort of queer subtext. And that's But I'm a Cheerleader from 1999, directed by Jamie Babbitt, who's gone on to direct shows like Girls. And written by Brian Wayne Peterson, who's best known as a producer on shows like Smallville. Um, and it is as much a, com- a coming-of-age movie as it is a rom-com. I mean, it's a straight-ahead comedy in many respects. Um, I think the thing it, ha- it might have most in common with is, is the work of John Waters as a sort of broad and outrageous satire. And it's a comedy about conversion therapy of all things. This is one I had not seen before and uh, quite enjoyed. I mean, in some ways, it's wildly 1990s with the heavy use of alt-rock on the soundtrack and a lot of earnest singers over jangly guitars, <laughs> yes. lots of montages, you know. But uh, it's pretty charming. It, uh, Natasha Leone is Megan. She's the cheerleader of the title who has a boyfriend but doesn't like kissing him. Now, she has Melissa Etheridge poster, and she likes photos of ladies, so her parents, played by Bud Court and Mink Stoll, of all people, they're concerned about her their daughter's lesbian tendencies, uh, as is her friends, including a very briefly a cameo from Michelle Williams, I guess before she was a, a real star. Um, so so uh, Megan gets sent to True Directions. It's a primary color conversion therapy camp turning gays into heterosexuals. At least that's what they promise. And that includes other campers like Clea Duval, who plays Graham, and Melanie Linsky. Um, and this is all run by Kathy Moriarty as the character Mary Brown and RuPaul, of all people, as Mike. Uh, this is pretty <laughs> darn funny stuff. Uh, for a subject that's so toxic, they really do a good job of having fun with traditional ideas of gender roles. And it basically like punches holes through all of those ridiculous rules and instructions for turning people straight. Um, yeah, I uh, I quite like this movie in many respects. What did you make of it, uh, Stephen? Oh, I really like this film, too. It's it's one, I mean, I've been aware of this film ever since it came out, and it's one of those things I just always meant to get around to and somehow never did. And and uh, I, I'm, I'm glad we agreed to, to watch it for this film, because I, I like Natasha Leone quite a bit. I mean, I remember liking her back in the slums of Beverly Hills, which is the film that kind of, brought her to everyone's attention and more recently in the TV series Russian Doll with which uh, Jamie Babbitt has directed for in fact Jamie Babbitt's been doing some great work in series television Um, Only Murders in the Building is another show she's worked on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel Uh, so you know it's it's fun to go back and look at uh, where where that career was Uh, what are we looking at almost 20 years ago now or more than 20 years ago yeah seriously 1999 so this is 23 years old and, and yet the message of the film is is just as potent now because there's still you know, we're no further ahead in some places with, uh, with you know, letting LGBTQ teens be who they are and learn who they are. That that there's still places that where they're, you know, people try to force their kids into conversion therapy or you know through religious means or uh, pray the gay away, which I'm surprised doesn't show up in this in this film at all. Maybe that's a more recent uh, phenomenon or, or what have you. But but you know, it seems like uh, there's still. Um, 
you know, there's still a lot of issues that that uh, that that gay and transgender teens have to deal with in in some parts of the world. And uh, you know, it's 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 too bad that this film isn't like a nostalgic remember when kind of thing. It's more like a no, this is still happening in some places, and and it's still a conflict that's happening in families uh, all over the place. And 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 the uh, the nod to John Waters, I think, is 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 pretty clear. I mean, Mink Stoll, who plays uh, Megan's mother, is of course one of the stock company players in John Waters uh, filmography so her presence there pretty much is signals that uh, yeah for sure that, that those films were a huge influence and uh, I, I think the comedy it's pitched at just the right tone I thought I, I felt like it didn't you know it just it it didn't feel like it needed to be necessarily tasteless uh, in, in its portrayal of, of what was happening with these kids that it could have fun with it um, but also you know at least let us know that this isn't that far from the truth. I mean, there are jokes and things are heightened and characters are a little more um, exaggerated, but but there's a version of this happening somewhere right now as we speak. This isn't something we've made up. And uh, I, I feel it's very, very effective as it walks that line of being very funny, but also uh, still very touching and meaningful, uh, especially for uh, for Megan and Graham. And, and Clea Duvall is an, an actor I've been a fan of for, for a while now. I loved her in the, the HBO series uh, Carnival was where I first noticed her. But she's been in a lot of other shows, Better Call Saul and some other things. And just a, a fabulous actor. So it's it's very interesting to see her at this earlier stage in her career um, playing you know, a very tough and very tender kind of character. Yeah, and the romance when it comes is is with her. And she's also a director. I mean, she's done a lot of great things. Yeah. Um, you know, it's... it's uh, it's fun to see Robert Pine here as Mr. Eaton, uh, Cleo Duval's character's father. He he's an actor I remember from my childhood. He's the police chief in the TV series Chips. Uh, he's also yeah. happens to be the father <laughs> of uh, Chris Pine, the uh, the you know leading man in Hollywood right now. Um, and I also very much enjoy the unexpected appearance of Julie Delpy, credited here as lipstick lesbian. Yes. She's and dressed as she just stepped off the set of Before Sunrise, like. <laughs> It's anyway, it's great seeing her in this too. Yeah, that's this was a fun discovery. I was really glad to see it. Um, we should mention one other film now before we wrap up this segment of Lens Mirrors, and that's the incredible Jessica James. We watched it, uh, it's on Netflix, it's from 2017. It's a romantic comedy that I, I noted right away because Jessica Williams plays Jessica James, uh, and she's someone I knew. I uh, really enjoyed on The Daily Show when she was on there as a correspondent and, of course, in Booksmart, which we've already mentioned once in this. I, any chance for me to mention Booksmart? Um, this is a film written and directed by Jim Strauss, and uh, it gives Williams this leading role that she takes a really big bite out of. She's an aspiring New York playwright, the Jessica of the title, who's just broke up with her ex, Damon, played by Lakeith uh, Stanfield. And she's beginning to date, but she's, you know, she's pathologically honest and still obsessed with her ex. So dating isn't really going well. Um, she has a good friend uh, who's a lesbian and uh, to make ends meet, she teaches theater arts to kids. And that's kind of her life right there. But um, she is outrageous. And when she sleeps with this divorced guy played uh, named Boone, played by Chris O'Dowd, she probably thinks she's never going to see him again. Uh, and when he calls her, she says... Um, just because you caught a unicorn in the wild doesn't mean you can tap it whenever you want. <laughs> uh, and that gives you a sense of her outsized ego, which is a lot, but also how funny and witty this movie is. Uh, but yeah, it's about how these two people who are kind of damaged in their own ways try to hang out and they both sort of 
at one point, it's social media plays a role here because they both unfollow their exes in the same moment and then uh, they are filled with regret when they do. So they agreed to follow each other's ex and then keep in touch and let, let the other know what's going on. Um, I like their friendly vibe. I wasn't entirely convinced as them as being hot for each other. Um, you know, it's again, kind of amazing how American film has really, is really bad at making sex plausible between people sometimes. <laughs> uh, not all films, bros are pretty, pretty convincing, but otherwise there's a lot of them that aren't. Um, but, uh, this still feels pretty fresh. I mean, basically it's a rom-com about two people on the rebound, which is not something we see every day. No, it, it, it's about five years old. I, I've not really spent much time with this since I saw it, uh, back in 2017. Uh, but I, again, I knew Jessica Williams, uh, mostly from the daily show and really enjoyed her in this role uh, and, and that her character is uh, unapologetic and very very much an individual and very outspoken and uh and you know doesn't want to back down from that and i think that's terrific i think she's a a great character and in fact i you know i'd like to see more of this character sometimes in these rom-coms by the end of it you're kind of like okay well you know good for them <laughs> Let's move on. I don't really need to spend any more time with these people, but 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 hers is a character I think, that, and apparently she and um, and she and the director uh, are um, I'm trying to remember his name. Jim Strauss are are, are working on uh, another project apparently, so that would be great to see. Uh, and and the, yeah, with Chris O'Dowd, I think they're kind of counting on that. He's charming. He's likable, and there'll be chemistry and and. You have to just kind of go with that, yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think I like the film quite a lot. I think that there's there's a feeling that you know, in the world of smooth formula rom coms like Ticket to Paradise, this feels really indie, and it's got if it's got rough patches. I overall liked how it tries to do something different, and and it it almost feels a bit workshopped. But then one of the elements of the story is that she teaches theater, and that you gonna we spend some time there with her and the kids, and and that feels very improvised as well. So all of that is really charming. And it's a solid New York movie. I mean, we get to see Bushwick and other yeah. more scenic portions of the city. And anyway, I mean, you know, to take it back to one of our earliest podcasts, which was New York movies, yes. um, this would be an en- a good entry to that. Yeah, it feels like she's living a very New York life where she's doing multiple things at once, trying to, you know, like holding down multiple things, n- none of which are really paying off in the way that she'd like in hopes that, you know, her her path as a screen as a playwright will will eventually unfold in front of her and it's it's certainly what a lot of people professionally working the arts have to cope with you know holding down multiple jobs or you know some job and some volunteer and and some self-time trying to work on whatever project you hope is going to get you noticed or to the next level and and i feel that that juggling of her her personal and professional life part is really handled well here and of course uh, Lakeith Stanfield this might be the first time I've seen I saw Lakeith Stanfield in something and he's so charming here and uh, I just uh, it makes me want to go back and watch some of those performances of his that I you know once I'd actually taken notice of him in a more major way uh, you know like sorry to bother you and so on that that I feel like I should go back and revisit his filmography as well Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Well, 
Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, and this is the last segment of the show looking at romantic comedies. Uh, we've been talking about some more recent ones. Uh, of course, Ticket to Paradise and Bros are uh, two recent ones uh, that were in theaters or have been in theaters. Bros you can see on streaming services. In fact, I had to watch it on the Cineplex platform because it had left the theaters the day that I wanted to see it in the middle of the week. It wasn't even like, like it just kind of trickled its way out of the theaters like with a 4 p.m. matinee or something like that on a Thursday. So it was, it was kind of kind of sad. I would have liked to have seen it in the theater, uh, but such was uh, not the case. But uh, now we're going to take a look at some, some older films. Of course, the romantic comedy is one of the oldest uh, movie forms known to man. I mean, they're, they're romantic comedies from the silent era. And, and in the 30s and 40s, the form uh, really had a heyday in, in a way that... Uh, is really unique to that era in terms of uh, first the pre-code era where they could be a little more frank about um, about sexual relations or, or at least sexual awareness. Uh, I mean, you couldn't show anything, but you could you could hint at things that uh, that suggested that the characters either you know had uh, a sexual past or perhaps at least were aware that that uh, that such things happen between men and women, which uh, would not be the case in, in starting in 1934 when the production code would be uh, more severely enforced. Uh, but, but there were ways to get around it, and there are uh, what happened uh, is that the, the pre-code era gave way to the screwball comedy, which where romantic complications could be twisted in such a way to be completely outlandish and outrageous in films like... Um, you know, in the Philadelphia story, for example, or or uh, bringing up baby with Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, who we mentioned earlier in the show, uh, that uh, kind of outsized characters and outlandish situations could um, could kind of bring characters together uh, if they were very different kind of characters, like a, a milk toast professor and uh, a showgirl or what have you, and and somehow make the romantic sparks fly if if they're played by Barbara Stanwyck and. Uh, Henry Fonda or whoever. So uh, there's some great writing in these films, some great direction, and of course, uh, just the, the, the great Hollywood stars of that time who, who really bring these scripts to life. And the one we're going to look at is called The Libeled Lady from 1936. Uh, you can't beat this cast. It's Gene Harlow, William Powell, Myrna Loy, and Spencer Tracy um, all all together in one film. And it's uh, it's set in the world of uh, of big city newspapers, which was a frequent setting for films uh, in the 30s and 40s, uh, and you know, his, his Girl Friday is probably one of the, the best examples of that with uh, Rosalind Russell and Carol Cary Grant. But but here we here we have uh, Spencer Tracy. He's a he's a hard put upon newspaper managing editor, uh, and uh, he's uh, constantly disappointing his uh, his girlfriend uh, Gladys Benton, played by Jean Harlow. They're they're almost always about to get married and then a big story breaks and he has to go back to the paper and manage the situation. And, and she's, she's getting fed up with it. And in the middle of it, uh, the papers run a story about an heiress played by Myrna Loy, Connie Allenbury. And it has said that she was in, involved in some outlandish behavior uh, involving a royalty at a party or something like that. And it turns out the story is untrue. And it did make it into some editions of the paper, even though they tried to stop the presses. A few editions got out. And so there's an impending lawsuit coming. So uh, what happens? They try to con her into dropping the lawsuit by getting Bill Chandler, uh, the paper's former top lawsuit man, <laughs> into uh, basically cooking up a romance with Connie. 
uh, and then pretend that she's actually breaking up his marriage to uh, Gladys, played by Gene Harlow. So they had to concoct a fake marriage to Gene Harlow's character with William Powell in order to trap Connie. Anyway, it's really not the plot that matters. If if I if I try to explain it, I give myself a headache. And it's really just about watching these amazing character actors uh, interact and uh, you know just make you fall in love with their ridiculous predicaments and some great physical comedy along the way. Yeah. Okay. I I mean, plot does matter because I'm a very plot driven yes, kind of guy. And this is, I mean, I appreciated the screwballness of. I appreciate all the things you're talking about the the energy, the 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 you know excitement of these characters. Characters, um, but it is not. Uh, I mean, there were times when I was rolling my eyes, going, "This doesn't make a lick of sense." No, well, that's screwball comedy. For you know, me. I mean, it doesn't even explain why. I mean, and there's also character issues, like Haggerty, Warren Haggerty, played by Spencer Tracy. You know, he is he's about to get married to Gene Harlow's character Gladys, and he just doesn't want to do it. And the film never bothers to explain why it is he doesn't want to get married to her, and he's stringing her along, treating her really badly until the very end of the film, where he finally sort of figures out that he's she loves him and he loves her. Um, and it it just you know she says it again and again. If you don't want to marry me, just say so. But he denies, denies, denies. He's he's just kind of a heel in a way that I just found a little hard to take. Um, you know, fortunately, we spent a lot more time with William Powell and Myrna Loy, who is you know who, uh, uh, a pairing that were in a ton of films at the time, including of course the ones the Thin Man. I I absolutely love those films, and it's great to see them again because they have such an ease with each other. Um, and you know she sniffs him out right away. He's trying to he's trying to basically trap her in and uh, again plot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, trying to explain it just it won't make sense. But no, you, you just kind of have to let it unfold. Cause yeah, because because even at the end when they're trying to explain how one character was married, but then they weren't, and then they had a divorce, but that divorce was rendered null and void. And, and anyway, I, I'm still not sure how they got out of that one. But um. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. Um, and there, there are moments, like right in the middle of this film, there's this fishing trip where uh, it gives Powell's character and Loy's character a chance to get to know each other better, and they go for a midnight swim out to this raft, which is the coolest raft I have ever seen. <laughs> it's more like a floating bar yeah, exactly. with electricity and a couch and and like like um you know just like bathrobes to keep warm when you swim out there i mean it's just you know obviously the wealthy uh, these people are super wealthy and they've got this amazing uh, you know setup which uh, which is pretty great but i mean it is a whole lot of fun uh, in many many respects you just got to overlook the you know the things that don't make sense and the datedness of the gender roles um but uh you know it is all of this is played for laughs in a way that and it goes so quickly that you kind of just gotta as you say you just gotta run with it or you know forget it that is the case of a lot of screwball comedies that that the second you try to bring logic into it and yet they're so good at railroading their way through you know plot logic with with just force of character force of personality that uh, that you can forgive a lot in a lot of these films, and and uh, I, I like the fishing trip sequence uh, that where uh, basically William Powell's character has to pretend he's a champion angler um, to suit Connie <laughs> to Murnaloy's dad, uh, played by the great uh, Walter Connolly, uh, and and they're all the talk about catching trout and the best places to go trout fishing, and then of course once they actually get him in the river with the with his. Uh, fly fishing gear he's a complete uh, complete failure but uh you know and that's generally thought to be the best scenes in the film that are that the whole 
fly fishing scene. But uh, but it's it's not necessarily the best work of any of these character actors, um, especially you know when you consider some of the other stuff that uh, Powell and Loy have been in. But it's it's interesting that uh, usually Powell and Loy's characters are you know they're either in a relationship already or they're in a relationship that they have to kind of get out of and then get back into and. And the sort of thing that we see in Return to Paradise, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, Libel Lady has been on the Criterion channel. That's where I watched it. But I'm not sure. I think it's one of the ones that's leaving at the end of October. So by the time people are listening to this, they may not be able to watch it on the Criterion. Plus, you possibly to- not. But it's on physical media and TCM show it quite often. Yeah. So yeah. There, and, are, and, there are ways to get it. And, and you, I think it's probably rentable on digital Probably, yeah, services, yeah. So, anyway, we're going to wrap up our our romantic comedy revisited episode here on Lindsay Ears with one that is a very divisive uh, <laughs> film, but is adored by many, and that's Love Actually from two thousand and three, written and directed by Richard Curtis. Now, we talked a lot about Richard Curtis on the last episode of Lindsay Ears uh, that was about you know romantic comedies, and and he is one of the big names, uh, you know, in British film, uh, whatever kind of film, but his his scripts for things. Things like the tall guy, oh, Blackadder, way back when, um, you know, and and forwardings in a funeral and Notting Hill. I mean, he, these are wonderful, classic, classic uh, uh, films. And uh, he finally got the chance to direct his own film with Love Actually, and he really, it's it's almost like freebasing Curtis, like it's it's all <laughs> of the things without any kind of restraint, um, and it's an anthology anthology film sort of about a number of different characters around Christmas um, you know and uh, this film is also now associated in my mind with a great piece by Christopher Orr formerly of the Atlantic and you can find that uh, that piece if you go to Google and type Christopher Orr O-R-R and Love Actually and you'll find an article where he basically calls it the most inherently unromantic film of all time, I mean, for romantic comedies. And I really enjoy his argument, even if I don't entirely agree with him. I, I find a lot about Love Actually to enjoy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it does have its problems. Uh, Stephen, you've seen it. You saw it just recently for the first time. What did you make yeah, of Love Actually? I, I don't know why I didn't see it when it came out, because I like Richard Curtis. I mean, the thing about Richard Curtis is, you know, as far as romantic comedy goes, his grounding is in the comedy part. I mean, he... Uh, started out on Not the Nine O'Clock News. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, yeah, a, yeah. A very funny British, uh, sort of the British version of This Hour is 22 Minutes, but with Rowan Atkinson and, and um, uh, Griffith Jones, Mel Smith, uh, Pamela Stevenson. Uh, a really fine uh, topical comedy show. Not all that holds up terribly well, but some of it's still quite funny. Mm. They did a very funny Kate Bush parody. <laughs> I remember. That you've probably seen. Yes, yes. Um, it, it actually predates uh, uh, 22 Minutes, I think. Oh, oh no, it definitely predates uh, yeah. 22 Minutes because then they did a version of it for HBO that sunk like a stone because ah. it just wasn't uh, terribly funny. They just didn't have those kinds of people involved. And, and, uh, and of course, Blackadder and, and Vicar of Dibley and things like that. So, you know, he's definitely got his comedy cred. And the romance part just sort of falls naturally into place, I guess. Uh, and and I find uh, I must have just thought that maybe this was going to be too treacly even for me. I mean, I did like Four Weddings and a Funeral. I do like oh. uh, other feature scripts that he's written. Uh, and for some reason, this one just uh, somehow passed me by. Well, and, it's uh, plenty treacly, but there it, are. It is. It's got. It's got. A, it's really high moments too, though. That's what you get with an anthology. Some of the stories don't work at all, and some work really well. Yeah, and it, it did win me over. I, I I did enjoy watching this, and not all of it works. But I mean, how could it? In, in a film like this, but uh, the, the nice thing about it is it kind of, 
it doesn't stay in one place for too long and 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 you don't have time to get tired of one certain situation because the next thing you know you're on to the next one and and uh and and while all the stories don't necessarily click the um you know the 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 one about the wedding video i felt was uh that and then of course the guy and i guess that's the guy with the signs i guess mm-hmm. that's the most contentious it is um, yeah. segment in the, the, the whole best film. friend who has to confess his love to the recent bride of, of yeah. his best friend and does it in a way that in some respects seems kind of sweet but also is awful <laughs> so yeah and i mean this cast it's hard to, i mean geez alan rickman emma thompson rowan atkinson liam neeson laura linney bill nighy Colin Firth, Martin Freeman, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Kieran Knightley. It just goes on and on. These are these these are entirely watchable performers, in many of whom in very small roles. Yeah, and and uh, maybe I was on an anti Hugh Grant bender, uh, was just avoiding anything with Hugh Grant in it at the time. Mm. And he's great here. And and As uh, the prime I, minister. Yeah. I, I feel I feel bad about that now because maybe I was just a little tired of Hugh Grant. And well, he's come around. I mean, he's really shown a lot more range in recent years than he had at the time. Oh, definitely. I mean, even the gentleman and Paddington, uh, too, and, and things like that. Like he's he's definitely won us back. But but I think uh, I think that might have been a factor in my not wanting to see it at the time it came out. And then I just, you know, was not really into seeing romantic comedies for a long period of time. And and uh, you know, I mean, it's now that Halloween is behind us. As you're seeing, uh, listening to this, it's okay to think about things that are Christmassy and <laughs> and so on. And so so I didn't mind that aspect of it mm. either. And uh, was that your favorite, the Hugh Grant story, or were there other ones that really? I mean, the Rickman Thompson one is the most sad, I think. Yeah, but uh, there is still an element of hope in it as well. A little bit, but I I suspect that uh, it's, you know. It's one of those stay together for the children kind of kind uh-huh. of situations. I, I do feel bad about that, but but uh, I, I I think I think maybe the Hugh Grant. I did like the did like the Colin Firth storyline mm. with the uh, the the Portuguese housekeeper that who they never speak a word of English yeah. to each other, and then he basically proposes like it's yeah wow and it turns out that you know so so he learns portuguese in like what six weeks or something like that yeah and, enough to to say say the basic things yeah um I, I won't ruin the twist of that but I, I thought that was quite quite charming and uh the one thing the one weird thing i like um uh natalie uh, mccutcheon or sorry martine mccutcheon who plays natalie who's the uh the staffer at 10 downing street who of course, Hugh Grant has these conflicted feelings about, and then everybody's making jokes about her weight and stuff, which mm-hmm. don't those don't land at all. No, they and don't. and I don't see it, and I just thought that was weird. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so that that kind of and and because there's nothing. Clearly, she's fine. She's a normal, healthy, gorgeous person, and I don't understand any of that stuff. So that yeah. that uh, that has not aged well at all. And I, don't, no. I suspect it didn't play very well back then. Well, so. if you read if you read Christopher Orr's article, he talks I about the, con- read that. the conventional ideas of beauty in this film that are really, really undermine its its possibilities of being good. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, you're right there. It has its problems. And yet people now it's become like a regular Christmas tradition for a lot of people. And uh you know, and I got to say, one of the things I really like about it is it's so foul mouthed. If this was a PG film, it would be unbearable. But there's something about people swearing that makes it uh, really work. Well, that's it for this edition of Lens Me Your Ears. I hope you enjoyed this walk down 
rom-com memory lane, as it were. Uh, I hope you uh, get some ideas for maybe a future date night uh, movie outing. And of course, uh, if you uh, want to send us any feedback, we have a Twitter at LensMeYourEars and a Facebook page where you can leave comments and uh, get us that way. Uh, I'm on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And Karsten, you have one as well. Yeah, it's named after my blog, Flaw in the Iris. And of course, uh, yeah, I'm easily found there. Well, thanks for tuning in every other Tuesday, and thanks to CKDU for the use of the production facilities and the Village Soundcast Network for making us sound so good every week. We will see you next time. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.